On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about body language. As the leaders debate gets going, what are we looking for? What can you tell by not necessarily the verbal cues, but the other stuff? We're going to try and explain that. And we are also talking about finances. Again, with the election, there doesn't seem to be any leader who right now is looking to tighten things up all that much. And yet a new study says younger Younger adults who are just getting into the workforce, maybe been there for a while, they are going to pay heavily for all this spending and debt that we're accumulating. We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Last night was the second one of the French language leaders debates with the election going on right now. Stuns me that we have two French debates and one English debate, because Quebec obviously is twice as important as the entire rest of the country. I guess that's the interpretation. Nonetheless, uh, I don't know how many people watch the French debates, because, you know, most of us don't speak French at the level where we could keep up. So many people will be tuning in tonight. And what better as a fun idea to help you, to guide you along as we are going to watch this, then to talk to someone who can interpret body language and help you, give you some tips so you know what to look for and see, you know, who's 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 nervous, who's doing well, who's aggressive, all those kinds of things. Robin Robin Braley is a body language expert who joins us now. Robin, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing great, Scott. Glad to be on the show. Well, listen, this this is fun because we're, we're going to hear what these leaders have to say. And I'll tell you, Robin, I've reached the point with leadership debates political debates in general, where it basically it's almost a, a waste of time to listen because they don't answer the questions they're asked. They tell you whatever they want to say. Uh, the answers you get are prefabricated, rehearsed, script-written lines. You know, you almost get nothing out of this. So we have to dive a little further and and, and look for the nuances. And that's where you come in here. Um so let's talk about this for a bit. Let's talk about the body language for tonight. And people at home can be taking notes here. So when they watch, they can be uh, using Robert, using your uh, your insights here. Let's start with the very beginning, because I don't think many of us really, I mean, we know what body language is, but are we talking about just like hand motions and stance and everything else? Or are we talking right down to facial expressions and everything else like that? Well, body language or nonverbal communication is a series of indicators that signal and can dramatically impact how people feel about you and interpret what you say. You don't want to send mixed messages. Strong body language speaks to confidence, credibility, and trust. Shifty eyes, wild and crazy gestures uh, can support or detract from what you're saying. Now, trust is, of course, the number one uh, message that uh, or feeling that leaders are going after and so body language helps you to look for the tell as poker players uh, call it when is it is it always unconscious because like when i'm talking even right now and now no one's watching me at this moment but i'm not thinking at all about what posture i'm taking or how my hands are moving or anything is when you're concentrating on something else is body language great because you're just you're almost unable to be thinking about what you're doing uh leaders uh salespeople, uh certainly teachers uh they become aware of the power of body language now body language is walking uh 
when somebody walks into a room, are they intentional? Are they purpose-driven? Or are they a little uh, hesitant? Posture can communicate uh, confidence. Tone of voice, when to be soft but firm, when to be louder and more intense. And, of course, gestures, as I've mentioned, they emphasize and give meaning or detract. Are, are detract. Are the gestures choppy, floppy, pointy, weaponized? Sometimes we see a hand claw, which is a little off-putting. Last night we saw some pointing, which was a signal that Justin Trudeau and uh, Yves Blanchett were put off their game a little bit. Why, why would pointing suggest that? Well, pointing is a very harsh uh, message. It's a very harsh image. And so when you want to make a point... Uh, it's better to use a uh, uh, press your finger against your thumb with your with your uh, uh, hand uh, with your fingers pointed in and use that uh, rather than pointing a finger. Uh, pointing a finger is is much more aggressive. And you know, now, I mean, some people would say they want aggressive, but I mean, I guess with any of these things, you you it, it, you're playing two sides of the coin because if you're too aggressive, you look like you're a maniac, and if you're not aggressive enough, you look like you're you're too soft and wishy washy. Well, as your prime minister, you want someone who is in control, who has emotion, who has feeling, but doesn't let things get out of control, and that's what we'll be looking for tonight. Are there times when? Uh, the leaders go over the line and kind of lose it. Now, we, we had an indication last night uh, with uh, Justin Trudeau and Yves Blanchett at the end of the debate when they were trying to prove who was the best Quebecer, and uh, Trudeau left it. Now, I, I must say, in leading up to, what I'm, uh, to my illustration, uh, that Justin Trudeau is a master communicator. He's a master at uh, public speaking. He's a great communicator through the media. Uh, his hand gestures are always balanced. They're in control. They emphasize. They don't t- take away. They're, they're never off the beat of what he's saying. Last night, he lost it, and I could tell because he went back to the early Justin of uh, the first two election debates when he used one hand, and one hand that he chopped, and then he pointed, and that shows that you're off balance. Um, it's asymmetri- asymmetrical. Well, then Blanchett uh, pointed back and, uh, 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 and and went back at him with some very very aggressive hand gestures. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's start going through some of the things we might look for. Let's start with one that I don't even know if it qualifies. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Does sweating qualify as body language? Because I think of 1960 with Kennedy and Nixon and sweating, Richard Nixon's sweating was seen as like the huge turnoff. Is that body language? Well, that's uh, certainly nothing that you want to have happen if you're one of the leaders. Uh, that uh, particular debate, of course, was the first uh, television debate, and it turned out that Kennedy had been out golfing that day, and so he looked fresh, he was tanned, and uh, Nixon was sick, so he was sweating, his eyes were blinking, and uh, so that's always been a, a, uh, a benchmark of what not to do during a debate. Yeah. But uh, eyes are the window to the soul, so they are very, very important. Uh, when you meet someone, when you are listening to someone and watching them talk to you through a television screen or listening on the radio, uh, you look into their eyes. And so that eye contact 
is very, very important. And uh, now that takes us to Aaron O'Toole, uh, who has excellent facial expressions. He's, he's very consistent. He's been Mr. Nice Guy since the beginning of the campaign, but he has a habit of holding his hands together, which is the universal sign of prayer. Now, at the beginning of the debate, of the debate last night, that wasn't a problem, but it became distracting as things uh, went along. But he has a great facial expression uh, toolbox. He looks concerned when he should look concerned. He looks uh, angry but not out of control when he should look like that. Uh, and he can also uh, uh, shows great feeling and empathy. Mm. One of the things that I really wish um, was that we could have a close-up that was close enough up, which we never will get, to see the pupils, because, you know, I, I was reading that the one thing you can tell, the, the one absolute giveaway that nobody can control is when their pupils start dilating, which tells a lot about what they're doing or saying or how they're feeling. We're never going to get that. But what else can you tell from their eyes then? I mean, blinking, I guess, a lot of blinking is a, is a tell for something. A lot of blinking and, of course, uh, their eye contact. You don't want to have too much content because, or contact, because that gets a little creepy. But how they uh, <laughs> cut away and how they soften uh, their eye contact uh, to engage and connect in a positive way. Now, one of the secrets in watching debates is to watch the long shots. Now, there are a gazillion cameras that uh, are going to be filming the uh, debate tonight. And there are ones from the side. There are ones from the ceiling with overhead shots. Uh, and, of course, there are a number of cameras on each candidate that will be switched to uh, back and forth. When a candidate is off camera or they think they're off camera, those long shots can be very revealing. Mm. Last night... Uh, Blanchette looked bored. He was rocking back and forth at different times, and then he would realize that uh, what he was doing, and, and he would settle down. But uh, there were also times, uh, for example, uh, Justin Trudeau, when he was uh, uh, in, the, in a heated debate with Aaron O'Toole, uh, so rather than turning towards Aaron, partially turning uh, to engage in the conversation, uh, what Aaron O'Toole said really made him angry. And so he just looked straight ahead. And that was a real tell about uh, him uh, receiving the information and the ideas that O'Toole was trying to put across. You mentioned a few minutes ago about pointing as an example of, you know, if you're starting to lose your cool, if you're getting aggressive, that pointing might be a thing. What if it's the flip side? Um, you know, the, they're going to be nervous. This is, this is the one English language debate. You wouldn't be human if you weren't a little bit nervous, but beyond nerves, how would we, what would be the tell if somebody started feeling intimidated or off their stride or like they were not comfortable at that moment with where this is going and the answers they were giving or the pressure they were under? A stance of, that shows confidence is to lean slightly forward. Now, that's a public speaking and a media coaching uh, a trick. So when you see someone start to lean back a little bit, that's a tell that they're not quite comfortable where things, with what, where things are going, and they're starting to feel a little bit nervous. Also, the, uh, the eye movements, as far as where they're looking, they speed up uh, their their changes in focus and where they're looking, that begins to tell that uh, they're not quite as confident uh, as they'd like to be. 
I I would hate to suggest that in politics someone might stretch the truth a little or or maybe even lie. I I don't want to be the one to break that news to people that that might happen, but what would be a hint that we were being fed a four-alarm Pinocchio by someone if they were going to do that? Well, again, uh, body language is uh, a series of indicators, and I don't think there's one thing that will will tell you that, but it's the combination. You can just tell when someone uh, uh, feels a little off and is lacking confidence just in the intensity and the energy and uh, uh, the st- their stance. That can be a real indicator. I mean, there, there are some that I think everybody knows about by now. The crossed arms in front of you. Uh, we've all, I think, by now heard that that's a sign that you're sort of holding yourself in, that you're, there's not a lot of confidence there. But if you were coaching someone, and I'm assuming that all these leaders have been coached on this by now, um, you tell this person what then? What is the what is the one, two, or three-point thing to say, under no circumstances do this, or absolutely in every moment do this? What What's the thing that would win them the debate, body language-wise, tonight? Don't go over the top with your body language, with your voice, with your, your gestures. Uh, keep in control at all times, and manage your speech. Now, tonight is going to be spirited. I'm looking forward to it. We call uh, uh, political uh, TV debates uh, political theater, and that's what this is going to be tonight. And uh, uh, so uh, I'm going to be looking for those uh, moments when a, when a, uh, a leader might get out of con- might let themselves get out of control in responding to something that uh, uh, an opponent has said. You know, it is, um, it's interesting because we heard from a number of people, um, pundits, that when Trudeau got mad over the last two, got really aggressive, that this was really working for him. The funny part about it is, you know, listening to you, and I've heard others say, I don't know, this was supposed to be Mr. Sunny Ways and, and you know, the body language and the aggression and everything else. I, it's, I guess, is this a matter of interpretation? Robin, I mean, does it is it you or I looking at this and we depending on what we want? So so there's not one body language that will work for everyone or can it work for everyone? Well, first of all, everything is scripted and everything is rehearsed and everything is coached. So they are performing for TV clips, audio for radio tips, and then the video clips are going to uh, be uh uh, posted on social media. So all of their teams are looking for those little clips. So uh, they are rehearsed. They are coached. And one of the things that was obvious last night is they, by and large, kept to time. So in other words, they didn't talk into someone else's uh, time allotment. And that's because they wanted to uh, give those clean cuts, those clean edits uh, for radio and television and social media. So, yes, uh, it is rehearsed, it is um, uh, coached, but... I think we just lost Robin, but that's oh, okay I, because... No, I'm still oh, there. I'm, they're still I'm, there. Sorry, Robin, we lost you for a second there. Oh, okay, I had uh, I had something happen in, uh, in, in, on my phone. I thought uh, no we'd gone uh, over, over our time and uh, into, the, uh, into the break. Uh, so uh, what I'm saying is uh, I'm going to be looking for those times um, uh, when, uh, like it's free flow debate, for example, and, uh, there's, there's a possibility that they might get off their talking points. That's well, when hope. we're really going to see some interesting, uh, theater. 
let's hope. Robin Braley, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been listening to leaders talk. We've been listening to promise after promise after promise from all over the place, left, right, center. If there is a, well, I don't know if there is a center anymore. Nonetheless, we've been listening to just endless promises. All of them seem to involve billions of dollars. We are, we are in a time when apparently uh, money is no object in this country. I mean, we went through the pandemic and as I've said many times on this show, I think that most people probably agree that something had to be done and it was going to cost money. And so, you know, whatever the actual breakdown was, you know what, it was an emergency. But now we seem to, I think it seems like anyway, we've seemed to have grown quite fond of massive amounts of money. I mean, amounts of money for our governments to be spending vastly beyond anything we ever imagined before. The emergency, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but the emergency is not what it was. People can go back to work now and whatever, stores are reopening, but we seem to still love the idea of spending all kinds of money. But we always say, your parents told you once upon a time, eventually you're going to have to pay for what you borrow. We don't like to think that. Well, the Fraser Institute has come out with some new numbers about what that payback is going to look like. And let me put it this way. If you are a younger person, you may want to be paying attention. If you're a person who's got a younger person in your household, you're going to want to pay attention. Jake Fuss is a co-author of the study that we're going to be referring to. He is a senior economist at the Fraser Institute. He joins us now. Jake, how are you tonight? I'm great. Thank you. How about yourself? Look, I'm, I'm great. Although your study and the thing that you posted here, boy, it, it makes me very, very nervous. Um, because before we get into the numbers, part of the reason it makes me nervous is watching this election campaign, I don't see any leader of any party who seems to be interested in any way in showing discretion or reining things in as far as spending. It seems like it's a complete free-for-all still. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem, certainly right now. We've seen the pandemic has resulted in Canada racking up significant debt. Um, but, you know, little attention has been paid to this issue during the election campaign thus far. Um, but we know there's consequences associated with debt accumulation. Um, and today's deficits can be thought of as tomorrow's taxes. So our study shows that young Canadians in particular will shoulder the brunt of the burden moving forward. Um, mm-hmm. And Canadians aged 16 to 35 will pay roughly $20,000 per person in additional taxes over their lifetime due to current and future borrowing in Ottawa. Um, so this is definitely a significant issue. I want to get into that number in a second, but you just said something I got to not ignore, and that was little attention has been paid to this in the election. I don't think that I've heard a single leader talk about deficit or debt reduction. They've talked about deficit. They've talked about, you know, in 10 years, the Conservatives say they'll get back to a balanced budget. The Liberals, they're talking about whittling it down, but I've heard, I don't think I've heard a single word saying we've got to start attacking the debt and get the debt under control a little bit and start whittling away at it. Have you? No, you're right. Um, You know, federal politicians of all stripes have kind of decided it's easier to, you know, spend today and rack up debt and essentially defer the cost of that spending to future generations by borrowing. Um, So, you know, I think it's important that we should be having these discussions over the appropriate level of spending and deficits. And ultimately, you know, there's costs of inaction on tackling debt in the long term. 
Um, obviously, these are difficult topics and they're not easy questions to answer. But what you do, um, you know, it's often tempting to avoid or put off these conversations because they require you to admit that there's a problem and then you have to do something about it that many people may not agree with one way or the other. Um, so these are definitely difficult conversations, but um, it be interesting to see if uh, more discussion is paid to this um, during the campaign as it goes on. Do you believe this is a philosophy that's been now ingrained into us that, that we've, we've enjoyed very low, historically low interest rates for a long time now. Money has been easy to borrow and, you know, bad stuff never happens. We never suddenly get a spike in this stuff. So why worry about debt if we can just have all this money easily available to us? And if that's a personal thing, if we've learned that personally, obviously I would think that's going to translate into the bigger picture of the governments. Yeah, I think there's certainly a, you know, some complacency there, especially with interest costs being as low as they are today. Um, you know, if we even look back to, you know, an example in Canadian history back to the 1990s, um, you know, we had a lot of difficulties before and maybe we've forgotten some of the lessons that we learned during that time period. Um, but we know at some point, you know, the bill comes due. Um, and as interest rates rise, a lot of these problems um, start to become even, even bigger challenges for Canada to actually deal with at both the federal and provincial level. Um, so debt will certainly be a problem, even if we're not paying that much attention to it right now. Um, at some point, like I said, the bill is going to come due. All right, let's go back to those numbers that you threw out there. So you've done some calculations that say that the, what was it, 16 to 35 years old? We got the numbers right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we did a, a breakdown based on different generations of Canadians or how much they would pay in additional personal income taxes over their lifetimes. Um, and we found that young generations, so Canadians that are aged 16 to 35, um, they'll be responsible for paying an average of about $20,000 per person in that additional taxes over their lifetimes above what they normally would. Um, and then we see, you know, for the average Canadian, the amount is about $10,500. So how do you calculate that? How do you, how do you yeah, figure so that? How do you calculate that? Yeah, so at a high level, we basically examine the expected increase in federal debt um, relative to the Canadian economy from uh, 2019 onwards. Um, so we look at a lot of the information from government budgets, um, and then we calculate the amount of additional taxes that different age groups in Canada will have to pay. Um, so, for example, we might examine how much a typical 16-year-old pays in taxes today, um, how much a 30-year-old pays, how much a 65-year-old pays. And then we map out how much they pay over their lifetime um, based on the amount of debt that you accumulate over time. Um, and then we come up with those numbers of how much additional taxes they would actually pay. And is that, and just so I understand, the additional taxes you're talking about now, is that based on the debt that exists, the entirety, the 1.3 or whatever it is, trillion dollars that are there? Or is this extra you're going to pay based on just what's been spent in the last, like since 2019, as you say? Yeah, so great question. So um, this wouldn't actually encapsulate the entire $1.3 trillion that you just uh, mentioned. It's only the debt that's accumulated since 2019. So it's not only the debt that we accumulated during the pandemic, it's also the debt that will be accumulating in the years after that, um, you know, up to 2025, as well as, um, you know, future debt. So it's both current and future debt, um, but it excludes any of the um, debt that we accumulated before COVID uh, began. Because, yeah, and so that would mean the number would then be, would really be higher because, I mean, I was expecting when I first saw this, I thought it's going to be higher than 19,000 extra you're going to have to pay with 1.3 trillion now that we're holding as debt. But again, this is just recent debt that we're adding to this. 
that, that gets into the calculation. Exactly, yeah. If we were to repay the debt that we accumulated even before COVID, like you mentioned, uh, the, the numbers would be significantly higher in terms of the amount of additional taxes you'd have to pay. Um, and the other risk factor, too, here is that um, our calculations basically assume, you know, those lower interest rates, because that's the current environment we're in. Um, you know, these numbers could actually grow much higher than that $20,000 per person for people between ages of 16 to 35 if interest rates start to climb more or if debt climbs higher than our expectations. Um, so there's really a concern there, too, um, in terms of the amount of additional taxes you have to pay. Are we at a point now, do you think, where the number, where we start, and we, when we start talking about trillion dollar debts, are we at a, a point when the number is so huge and the needs that we have around this country are still so high that we can't just stop? We can't stop spending money. Have, have we just given up on the idea of ever trying to repay the debt? Yeah, I think that there's certainly a, a you know a point to be made there about you know how big these numbers are. I mean, when we're talking about 1.3 trillion dollars, or you know even in the billions, um, you know I think it's hard for for average people to kind of grasp these numbers. Um, that's one of the reasons why when we do these studies, we try to you know put it at a per person level and make it more of a you know personal feel with that individual. Um, style. So trying to talk to Canadians kind of about, you know, how much is it actually going to cost you over the long term, um, you know, at $20,000 per person over your lifetime. I think that makes it a little bit more tangible and easier to understand. Um, but we definitely do have concerns about, you know, when we're talking about billions or trillions of dollars, um, sometimes a lot of this discussion kind of gets lost in the, in the whole um, scuffle. Jake, do you, is it... <laughs> It seems as though small C conservatism, we're not talking about the conservative party. We're talking about those who might say we need to be a little more frugal or we need to find ways to chip away. It seems that small C conservatism, if you listen to the leaders again on the campaign trail, it's dead. Nobody seems to care about it. Yeah, there's certainly, you know, we're seeing, you know, kind of across the political spectrum. It's interesting there's kind of um, almost a consensus from a lot of them in, in terms of accumulating more debt. Um, but there's little discussion about the actual consequences associated with that. Um, you know, there's certainly times when accumulating debt can be appropriate um, during, during emergency situations like COVID, for example, or if you're investing in infrastructure like bridges or highways to a certain extent, there can be some justification there. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of problems with a lot of the proposals put forward by the various political parties right now. Um, you know, they're promising to borrow money after the economy has recovered. And little of the deficit finance spending is really going to infrastructure projects like bridges or highways. Um, so, you know, it's, a lot of them have decided it's easier to spend today and then defer the cost of that spending to future generations by borrowing. Um, so there's certainly, you know, a lot of problems in, in the various plans. I don't want to be um, playing the old man here and saying that younger people don't get it because I think they're smart and I think they do get it. But it seems that something is not clicking here. I mean, you're putting out these numbers that say, look, if you're a younger person now, early in your professional life, who's still got a long time to earn money, this is going to fall on you. Why, why has that seemed to not resonate? We're, we're, I mean, again, it's not just the leaders. We're not hearing different groups. We're not hearing people say, wait a second, this is concerning because my parents are going to be gone and I'm going to be stuck holding the bag. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I think part of the element is that, you know, debt isn't necessarily something tangible that you can see, especially at, at a government level. You know, personal debt is usually something that's a little bit more tangible and something you can kind of see on your bank account or with loans and things like that. A government debt is, is typically uh, something that's difficult to grasp. Um, you know, other elements, too, 
um, you know, long-term uh, horizons for, for thinking about things, budgeting over the long term. Um, two, I think, you know, some people are more in tune with things like that um, and thinking through, you know, borrowing and, and amounts they owe or thinking about over long t- time horizons, you know, how much taxes they're paying um, and things like that. So I think it can be sometimes difficult and overwhelming for, for Canadians to think about all the different issues um, and, you know, the, the longer term issues in particular. Um, so I, I think that probably plays a significant factor in a lot of these discussions. See, I, I really wonder if when this kicks in, when this resonates, is if in fact any government, whether it's liberal, conservative, whoever, whoever forms a government, if if they really do begin to try chipping away at this a little bit ever, and if you're right that this means now that for the average person in that younger age group that they're going to be paying more in taxes as they get older, you wonder if when the bill shows up on their mailbox, if suddenly they become aware or concerned or agitated by this, or if they, or if politicians at that point, Jake, just say, you know what, we'll find a way to pass this down to the next generation after that. So you don't have to pay it. And it just keeps getting pushed back and back until someone ends up holding the bag. Yeah. I think, you know, part of this discussion and kind of moving forward too, is when you get to that point where your interest costs become so substantial. Um, You know, we saw during the mid 1990s, um, when we had the uh, federal liberal government under Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin, um, they had about one in every three dollars of revenue going towards um, interest payments. So it was a significant expense. That's money that doesn't go towards things like social services, healthcare, right. education, flush down the toilet, all these things that we care about. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's money that is flushed down the toilet, and that that to me is the part that somehow I'm I'm amazed gets missed here that I don't even know what it is now. It's billions and billions, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars a year that we are just flushing down the toilet provincially and federally that doesn't build hospitals or roads or education systems or whatever else. And we don't seem to mind that. That That's the part about it that, that drives me a little bit nuts. We want our governments to provide all these programs and theoretically, we could have the money to provide these programs if we could somehow pay back that debt so we don't have all these interest payments. Anyway, it is uh, it is a fascinating study, and uh, people can read about it. It's um, They can find it online, Fraser Institute, and uh, look up uh, debt accumulation, debt... Um, there, well, there's all kinds. Of, just look up debt. You'll find it. It's, in, it's under news and Google. You'll find it there. Jake, really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks for the time. Thanks very much for having me on. It is, uh, again, look, look, I I know, first of all, I know that whenever we talk about Fraser Institute or have someone on from Fraser Institute, people say, hey, they're a right wing. Well, whatever. We're not talking about politics. We're talking about all parties here and we're talking about numbers and there's no getting around the debt that we now have in this country. There's nothing political about it. And as I said, several times talking there, all the parties are ignoring this. No, no party is out there as the fiscal conservative small C or the, the fiscally restrained party. Everybody wants to continue to blow our brains out on spending stuff. This is not a political thing. This is holy jumping at some point. This is going to be out there. We're going to have to start paying for this. And if we don't start to show a little bit of restraint, And there is no restraint in this election. There is none. There is no restraint in anybody's platform in this election. But if we don't start showing a little bit of restraint somewhere along the way, somebody is going to be paying for this. And boy, it's going to be unpleasant. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.